0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. I'm going to welcome you in. If you guys are outside in the hallway and you can hear me, come on in. We're going to start. Good to see you all this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in for our, uh, our discussion. We've been having more frequent uh, discussion-type Sunday school lessons, more frequent Q&As during this portion, during this section. Um, and I know that we did one a few weeks ago after uh, teaching on depravity and unconditional election. And we kind of ran out of time. There was, I'm sure, more questions that we didn't have time to get to. And then teaching on the atonement last week, we knew would also uh, bring bring up some questions. So we just want to give a chance to talk through that. So let's pray, and we'll jump in this morning. Father, thank you that um, we can gather today as your people. We can come together with confidence that though we are great sinners, we have a great Savior, and it's because of your work. That we can stand before you with hope. We can stand before you free of guilt and condemnation. We can stand before you with the assurance that we are loved by you. You've shown us that at the cross. Lord, we ask for grace as we try to peer more deeply into uh, the beauty and the glory of Calvary. As we try to understand the things that you have revealed in your word. I pray that you would give us a clear mind and a teachable heart. And that as we wrestle through some of these more difficult aspects, uh, that we would do so with humility. And with charity towards others who may not um, be able to explain it or or articulate it the same way we would. Um, But we do ask, Lord, that the result of these conversations, the result of this study, would be a deeper appreciation for Christ and a deeper sense of awe at the salvation that has been won for us at the cross. Uh, So, Lord, we pray for your spirit to be at work now. Give us wisdom as we discuss these matters. Amen. Okay, so we've covered total depravity and unconditional election And last week I covered what I prefer to call definite atonement or particular redemption, uh, which historically, um, if you follow the acronym TULIP, is often called limited atonement. So questions that you guys have in light of those three lessons we've talked about. And once again, not promising to comprehensively explain everything or to be able to persuade everyone, but we do want to give you some insight into um, why we would teach it uh, the way we do. And hopefully, give you some food for thought as you try to understand these things. So, any questions you guys might have along those lines? Yeah, Michael. Good question. So I'm going to recap that for people who watch later. But um, if the atonement is particular, definite, specifically for the elect in a unique sense and not for every individual in a universal sense, how does that shape our evangelism? Do we tell people Jesus died for your sins, Jesus atoned for your sins? Do we offer that? Do we avoid it? Uh, how How do we kind of navigate that? That's a good question. It's a practical one that is probably one that many of us have. So I'm going to ask Stephen what he thinks about that. Because <laughs> this has so, to do a little bit with election as well. Yeah. So if you're going to ask this question about atonement, well, the same thing, the same question applies, well, if, if those who will believe are those whom God has chosen in eternity past, how does that affect our offer of the gospel? So it's, it's really both.
1: And I think most of the limited atonement questions are at its root election questions you know they seem to intertwine themselves uh so one of the ways that i would answer that is is really how scripture offers it so people and we talked about this a little bit before but i think you know you think of john three sixteen, um you know for god's so love the world that he gave his only begotten son and people say whosoever you know and they emphasize the whosoever um but that whosoever is restricted it's by whosoever believes So there is a contingency, a limitation, a requirement in the offer of salvation. It's not um, anybody, everybody. um, It's anybody who believes. So there's a requirement there, um, even in the offer of the gospel. And even John, who's an apostle that has an evangelistic heart that's seeking out the nations, um, there's always this idea of whosoever believes. And I think that's really a great phrase for us in our evangelism to capture when we talk about the cross, um, not to try to indoctrinate people before their eyes are illuminated to say you need to believe this system, but rather to say um, there needs to be a heart change and until there's actually a desire and a belief. Um, that's how the call is, is best declared to the world. It says, whosoever believes, um, do you believe? Is, is there belief in your heart? And if that, that's the first fruit and evidence of, of someone who is um, made new and regenerated. So I think in evangelism, that's a great phrase for us to capture personally to say do you believe like a lot of times we think through me and I want to present the gospel in a very articulate way and I want it to be convincing and persuasive but we also need to remember there needs to be a call for a response mm-hmm. um, and I think that's something that really is um, because of the current culture in which we live it is very uh, seen as oppressive the world is telling you that you shouldn't actually call people to repent and believe, but that's what we see over and over in scripture. Um, you shouldn't actually ask people to respond to it. You should just present it and then, hey, make your choice, you know. And it's more presented as kind of a sale pitch, but um, actually, what you need to do is you need to press in and say, are, is there a new heart in you to respond to this truth? And recognize when you present the gospel, they are making a choice. They're either rejecting the truth. Or they're receiving it and submitting to it um, and believing in it. So I think those are the two options. And when we present the gospel, we need to present it in a way of whosoever believes. Because um, that's how scripture presents it.
0: Yeah, I would affirm what Stephen says. Um, scripture makes it clear that there's supposed to be a universal proclamation of the gospel. So in, in Luke 24, that repentance and forgiveness of sins in Christ's name is supposed to be proclaimed to the nations. So that's what we're supposed to do. So we're not to discriminate in our proclamation of the gospel. Um, in Acts, as, as Paul is preaching, he tells them that God now calls all men everywhere to repent. So we have no way of knowing who it is whom God has chosen. So we're supposed to proclaim to everyone. And so just personally, as, I think as we share the gospel, I agree with Stephen, we're not trying to emphasize you know, the, the, the secret will of God in terms of who that might be or the specific limitations, if you, know, of, if you want to put it that way, um, or the extent of the atonement, we're proclaiming the exclusivity of Christ. We're proclaiming the necessity of faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 4, um, Peter's preaching, and he says, This Jesus... Is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. So he's presenting the exclusivity of Christ and and that there's an opportunity, that in the name of Christ there is salvation. That's the opportunity we offer people. So whether it's whether it's the role of God's sovereignty and salvation, whether it's the exact extent or intent of the atonement. To me, that's not what I'm leading with. Is I'm sharing Christ with people. Like Stephen said, we're calling for a response of repentance from sin and faith in Christ, and we're telling them of the exclusivity of Christ. That there's only one way. Jesus says, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." So that's what we emphasize, and we call for faith in Christ, um, and we don't need to convince them of of other aspects. That's that's besides the point in that moment. So. Some people will answer that differently. Some people will feel comfortable saying that. Others won't. Um, I think, just thinking personally, I typically say Christ died for sinners. He died for sin. He died to atone for sin. Um, And I offer that and say, and whoever believes receives that. So whether I would say Christ died for your sins, um, if I would say that, I would say that I think there is a way to say that, to put it this way. So we've been talking about the atonement as being definite and particular, but there's other aspects to what Christ is doing at the cross that are more universal in nature. So Steve and I were talking about this this past week. So you think about what Jesus was doing at the cross. Well, making a specific atonement for specific sins is something that's happening there, but there's other things happening at the cross. The cross is also a triumph over Satan. And there's not... A Satan for every person. There's one Satan. There's one devil. And so Christ's death puts him to shame, disarms him, defeats him. And that is something that's universal. Um, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is something that defeats death. Death is universal. So the power of death has been broken. And that's something that affects all men. So there are certain aspects of Christ's death in terms of his victory over Satan, his conquering of, of death, uh, itself, and even in the sense of opening the way, like the, the curtain is torn and giving this access to God, like those aspects of christ 's work are universal. Um, now, in terms of the extent of the atonement, you know, penal substitutionary atonement, um, to propitiate the wrath of God. Like, that's obviously central to what's happening at the cross, but it's not the only thing. So, and that's something that I probably should have made more clear last week, is that in talking about the extent of the atonement and saying it's definite, we don't ever want to undersell or minimize other aspects of what's happening at the cross that are universal and comprehensive. So when I talk to an unbeliever, I know that the power of death over them, that Jesus holds the keys. I know that the Satan who holds them in, captive, in captivity and in slavery has been defeated by Christ. And so there's an aspect of Christ's death that in that sense is for them. Um, whether or not those sins have been propitiated you know, by the, 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 the death of Christ, I don't know. Um, I hope so. But I don't feel the need to articulate that. And I don't even always know how to think about that in my mind. So the, the priority is Christ died, you need it, here's the offer. And so we just press, press in on that. So anything you'd add to that? I think there's another hand where Michael's was going up. So what's the practical nature of these doctrines? Continuously. Yeah. Yes. So re- recap his comment slash question. Oftentimes this whole discussion is said, well, that's just a big theoretical philosophical argument. It's not practical to daily life. So how, how do we find the, the practical benefit and make sure we keep that um, central? I think there's a number of ways we can do that. I'll, I'll let you start. Since I, I recapped the question to give him time, and now he's going to answer a question and give me time. So it's a great little dance little, we do up yeah, here.
1: tag team effort here. Um, I would say evangelism is one of them, but we've talked about it a little bit, and, and we don't get to, and I think this is a really important question of why we want to do Q&As, um, is because we don't always get to the practical. We don't always get to the application. What does this look like in our shoes, in our lives, and how does it change the way we live? And ultimately, if we walk... Um, away with a bunch of scripture verses and theoretical thinking on how to navigate through these discussions. But we don't live differently. We're we're not actually growing to be more like Christ. So it's the question, really, in in godly living: How does this flush itself out um, in my life? So um, I think one of the ways that we've talked about a little bit is in evangelism. Um, I think practically, it actually gives confidence and removes the weight. Um, that's that's an application of this uh, these doctrines of grace, is to understand that I'm not the one that changes people's hearts. I'm not the one that actually says this specific persuasive statement that enlightens their intellect, but it's actually the work of the Spirit. So I'm called to be faithful and obedient, and that's actually glorifying to God, despite the results, because the results is in His hands. So Paul says... You know, I watered Apollos, uh, or I planted Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. Mm -hmm. Um, It's that idea that God is the one that's at work in salvation from start to finish. And that's been a theme we've been talking about through this study in the Doctrine of Salvation. And remembering that concrete idea, I think for me, has been really helpful in understanding how I live. Um, And living in light of an idea that... God is the one that's at work both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And that gives me freedom in my obedience to say, it's not on me. There's not this burden, this weight of I got to do more. I got to, got to, got to, got to, got to, me, 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 me. And it takes the focus totally off of God and makes it a a man-centered salvation. I think that's really big picture that flushes out into practical godliness and personal pursuit of holiness, both in evangelism, the way I talk, both in the way I forgive one another to recognize If I've been forgiven, if this is what Christ has done, that he's paid it all at the cross, that means that he is just and merciful, and that means he calls and commands me to forgive others. So that's another practical aspect. Like, my forgiveness looks like God's, but it's not identical in the sense that I'm not punitive or requiring some sort of repayment from people. But I can forgive freely knowing that God is actually the one that's going to deal with that sin. So there's real sin that happens against me, and I can forgive freely knowing God is just, and either he's going to pay for that sin at the cross, and it's going to be his wrath poured out on Jesus, or that person, if an unbeliever and condemned to hell, is God's being just in that way as well. So justice is not left up to me, and that's a big aspect for me that God's been teaching me and reminding me through this study over the last probably year, just thinking through how does the Bible define forgiveness? What's my calling in forgiveness? And I think that's one practical aspect that I think we haven't—I haven't been able to bring up yet—in um, thinking about how does these how do these doctrines of grace impact the way I relate to people in this world? And I think forgiveness is a big aspect of how it should impact us. To say I can freely forgive, and I ought not to hold something against someone, um, but I ought to offer forgiveness freely, recognizing that God is just and He will deal with it, um, and His His justice, His vengeance, His retributive way, like he is the one that is best at it. For me to triumph and say, no, I think I know how this situation should be handled and I'm going to make sure to lord this over somebody. That's a way for me to just say, I think I'm better at this job of justice than you, God, and and I'm going to step in and take over. And And that's not what we see in these doctrines of grace. Um, we see that God is just, he is holy, and he will deal with sin. He doesn't just passively um, wash it away. And I think that's the really the most important part about penal substitution with what um, is kind of brought up in this idea of limited atonement, recognizing that God is not a God who just says, my mercy means that I just, I look over your sin. But his mercy is actually an aspect of his justice in the sense that both are united at the cross, that he is merciful to us because he poured out his justice on Christ um, and for our sins. So I think that's really important for us to practically think through. Like, God doesn't just... Uh, let his justice fade away and say, well, I'm not going to be this angry God anymore. I'm just going to be this happy God. And because, you know, there's mercy is, is really what it is. It's, it's a misdefinition that our society presents of mercy to say you're not being very gracious. You're not being very merciful. You're not loving people. Mercy requires justice. Um, and that's who God is and that's who he's revealed himself to be. So we need to uphold both.
0: Yeah, as far as evangelism, I would just echo what Stephen said. <clears throat> and if you read church history, what you'll find is that these doctrines of grace, like unconditional election and, and truths like this, actually have been truths that have energized and sustained evangelism. So you can look at missionaries like William Carey. You can look at some of the most evangelistic pastors like Charles Spurgeon. You can look at evangelists who triggered or helped to trigger, God used them, uh, to trigger you know, in, entire awakenings, men like... Um, Uh, Whitfield. These guys were convinced of the doctrines of grace, and it was a very practical doctrine for them. Um, I think personally, it's practical in the sense of just our own personal piety, our own relationship with God. This is something that affects us. And I think probably foremost in my mind, the first thing that comes to mind is humility. I think we would all recognize that pride is something we struggle with. Humility is something we need to grow in. Every Christian agrees um, with that. And what's interesting is that this doctrine should be one of the most humbling truths imaginable. Um, it is one of the grossest kinds of hypocrisy when someone who says, I believe in Calvinism, I, I believe in unconditional election, these doctrines of grace, is an arrogant person or a proud person. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. The reason why any of us is a Christian is because of God's grace. We can't claim to be smarter, wiser, have some sort of intuitive desire for righteousness that's greater than our unsaved neighbors. That's not what separates us from them. The only thing that separates us from unbelievers is that God chose to save us. So in terms of how practical these doctrines are, this should be a daily um, reminder that helps us to grow in humility. I think also there's a sense of confidence and comfort that comes from this. Read through Romans chapter eight. You see this golden chain of salvation. Those whom he predestined, he called and justified and glorified. And then you say, what can separate us from the love of God? I mean, there's this amazing confidence that comes from knowing my salvation doesn't ultimately hang on me. It ultimately depends on God and what he started, he will finish. There's security there. So there's humility and security. There's so much here. Um, that I think is personally practical. I think it's also practical in terms of our methodology. This would speak to how we do evangelism. Do we try to manipulate, persuade, twist people's arms, scare them into it? No, we know there has to be work of the Spirit, so we preach the gospel because we're confident in the message. We trust God to do the work. Um, I think even things like total depravity are practical. Um, parents, do you believe that the greatest threat to your kids is out there? Or do you believe the greatest threat to your kids is in here? I mean, this is just practical theology for how we parent our kids. Um, It it touches every aspect of life. Your understanding of human nature, your understanding of how God saves people, um, it shapes the way we preach, the way we evangelize, the way we parent, um, all kinds of things. So I think there's an unending list of practical applications to this. And thanks for reminding us about that. So, Al. Yeah. Yeah, these doctrines should humble us and remind us that we're all sinners. We're the ones in need of grace. So, it's good. Sorry, can you maybe distill that down for me? So, how important do we think this doctrine is? Is that what you're asking? Okay. Are we in agreement that that's a primary doctrine? And
1: secondarily, if a major evangelical leader says, "I don't know if Christ is the only way," there may be a trap door we don't know about. Okay. What would you
0: say to him? So, so two two two-part question. Okay. So, is this doctrine of unconditional election a primary doctrine? I don't think I would use the word primary. So, if you look in our statement of faith, we have unconditional election in our statement of faith, but it's not in the essentials category. It's not in the things you must believe to be a Christian. I think there's people who would disagree with our definition of election. They would explain it differently, and I think they're an error. But I don't think this is something that um, um, that is of the nature that means that they're not truly saved and they will not enter the kingdom. So it's not primary in that sense. I would say it's very, very important. And that's why we put it in our statement of faith because this has to do with your view of who God is. And if you have the wrong view of God and if you craft God into our image instead of allowing him to reveal himself to us, that's a very, very dangerous path to go on. So we do think it's important. I would not say it's a primary doctrine, the doctrine of election. Your second question has to do with the exclusivity of Christ. Is there another way of salvation outside of Jesus? That's a different question. Um, And... The clear answer, I mean, I read earlier from Acts, there's no other name. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, We don't have the option to answer that question differently than how Scripture does. Scripture makes it very clear that Christ is the only way to salvation. There's no salvation apart from the cross. Um, If there was, there's no reason for Jesus to come and die. It's kind of a waste. And then some people would get the glory for their own salvation because they found a way apart from Christ. So... Clearly, Scripture teaches there's no other way, Um, and that those who are condemned, according to John 3, are condemned because they do not believe in the only begotten Son who was sent for the world. So um, how should Christians relate to someone who says there's other paths of salvation? I would say mark them and avoid them, because that's a false gospel. This is something we cannot compromise on. We cannot compromise on the exclusivity of Christ, that he's the only way to salvation. So... I think Mark and then Joe. I'm not, I'm not sure the name you're talking about, so I'm not sure the books. But yeah, I would just say if you have books on your shelf of somebody who's teaching that God might save people apart from Christ, that's not somebody you should be listening to. That's, that's false teaching. So we need to be discerning on that. So Joe. Joe. Yes, if we, to echo Joe's comment, if we turn away from unconditional election, we're not just wrong. We actually lose out on so much blessing, confidence, assurance, comfort, um, and, and, and knowledge of God. We're, we're closing the door on an aspect of himself that he's revealed. So we, we don't want to do that.
1: John Newton would agree with you. He said, I don't have a moment of comfort apart from my doctrines of grace. And it's true.
0: Yeah, we'll get there in a couple weeks. So, yeah, we'll talk about security. <laughs> yeah, and I want to be charitable to say that there are those who do not believe in unconditional election who have certainty in their salvation. They feel confident. Um, you might argue that that's inconsistent or misplaced, but I would say that even there, someone who says, no, it's, it's man's free will um, that's ultimately determinative, um, Still at the end of the day, what are they, if they're truly saved, what they're basing their hope on is God's promise. There's a promise in in Romans 10 that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There's a promise if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So at the end of the day, I think while it might be inconsistent and we see things missing, um, at the end of the day, it is possible to have assurance if you're trusting in God's promise. At the end of the day, it depends on God keeping his promise. Now, I think that's shaky ground. Um, but I wouldn't say somebody who's Arminian can't have, that, they, that no Arminians have assurance of salvation. They do. Many of them do because they believe that promise. And so we should, we should be thankful for that. Sure, which is why there is a tension there, and that's why we're teaching on it, to press us deeper into thinking about these things. So. Other questions? I know we could have lots of comments and discussion because we enjoy talking about all these things. But any questions you have, because we want this to be clear and understandable. Um, And if there's things you're wrestling through that aren't kind of connecting, um, we'd love to speak to that.
1: That really killed it. So, for you guys, in talking through election, I'm going to rewind a little bit. One question we didn't get to talk about last time that I had thought through was maybe you've engaged with people and they've asked you, How can you believe that? That makes God really unfair. Or it seems like, you know, if God is electing some and, and passing over others, doesn't that make him partial? I mean, in Romans 2, God is not partial. Like, we see that repeated in Scripture. Have you guys ever engaged with people on that level and thought through that question? Maybe. If not, what do you think, JD?
0: (laughs) Well, I think the first thing I always bring up when people say, that's not fair. Um, and, And I don't say this in a snarky, like, gotcha way, but I really want them to think about it. Well, let's talk about what the Bible says. Where in the Bible is God... Required to be fair? Where is God required to abide by some external standard of fairness that means equal opportunity for all? Because that's something that that makes sense in our minds, but is that something that God is obligated to do? And what you'll find is scripture says God is just, but it never uses the word fairness in in the sense that we think of fairness. We think of fairness in terms of equal opportunity. Um, for, for everyone, and that if someone is unable to believe because they're spiritually dead and blind, and God does not choose them for salvation and then open their eyes and enable them to repent and believe, that somehow God cannot be fair or just to, to punish them for their sin. And like you pointed out in, in the lesson you taught, um, if you read through Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, you'll find that the Apostle Paul anticipates that exact question. How does he still find fault? That's not fair. That's the instinct. And Stephen pointed out that if you're starting to feel those things, then you're actually reading it rightly because that's what Paul's anticipating someone will think if they get what it is that he's been saying. If that's how it works, this is going to be some people's knee-jerk reaction. Um, And that's where Paul points out that God is not obligated to be fair in a human sense um, to, to everyone. And now, And and you see that. He says, well, he's the potter or the clay. You're not in a position to obligate God to say what he has to do and doesn't have to do with his creation. So the Bible does say God is just. And so justice, if you want to describe fairness as being just, justice looks like all of us being condemned and all of us going to hell. So the fact that God saves some magnifies his mercy. It does not diminish his justice that he doesn't save all. And I would also say this. uh, the commands against partiality um, and, and the commands even for love that we are accountable to are unique to us because we're in the creature category. Um, we're commanded in James not to show partiality. We're commanded to love our neighbor as ourself and to love our enemies. And we have certain obligations. But that's because we are creatures and we're recipients of grace. And that puts us in this category where we do have an obligation to treat all people a certain way, to love all people a certain way. But God is not a creature, he is not a man, and he is not under any obligations. He, he acts out of his character, out of who he is, his perfect justice, his sovereign grace. And so he's not accountable to some external standard outside of himself that we come up with that we call fairness. Um, he is perfectly just according to his nature. So that's where I would start, is just question where do you get this idea and definition of fairness, and where do we find that in scripture? So, Craig's got a hand up here. Um, just related to that, um, how would you address the accountability of the lost? How would we address the accountability of the lost? Um, again, we want to address that question. How can people be accountable? We want to address it biblically. Um, Romans chapter 1 says that they are without Excuse. So we're not in a position to say, well, they have a good excuse because the Bible says they don't have an excuse and gives several reasons why. It says what can be known about God is plain to them from creation. Romans chapter 2 tells us that the law of God is written on their hearts. So they have this external witness of creation, this internal witness of Scripture. So even the hypothetical situation of the person on a remote island who never hears a New Testament gospel proclamation, they're still accountable for suppressing the knowledge of the truth still accountable for exchanging the image of the creator for created things, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. They're still responsible for transgressing what they intuitively know to be right and wrong. And so they are judged, in the end, for those things, and rightly so. So there is an accountability there. Romans 1 says there, there's not an excuse because of, because of that. So I think that's, that's where we have to go to. And then uh, John chapter 3, uh, they're condemned because they did not believe. That's there as well. So... Tessa. Yes, I'm going to recap your question very briefly. Try to. Um, so the question is: What about persecution? Do Christians face persecution? Should we expect that? Some people think that. You know, they seem surprised by that. Um, what is that? How does our response to persecution? Um, what does that say about the genuineness of our faith? Um, and kind of how should we how should we think about that? Respond to that. I think this is something we'll get to kind of in the last again the last point of. Tulip is the perseverance of the saints, so I'm going to punt a little bit on this, but I would just say this, that um, being chosen by God for salvation, being truly born again and regenerated by the Holy Spirit um, doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy, doesn't mean there won't be opposition, and that will come from the world. It may come from the devil. There's spiritual forces at work, so there's different sources of persecution, and that can be persecution at a small scale. Um, all the way up to a very large, significant scale, like losing your life. So I think I would have a broad definition of persecution. Yes, we've had, historically, we've had things easy in our country. I I don't think that means there's no persecution, though. Um, But ultimately, at the end of the day, persecution is something that proves the genuineness of our faith, because genuine believers will endure that and persevere till the end. That's one of the things that proves that the work of God in their life is, is genuine. So... Anything you'd add to that?
1: Yeah, I think we're going to get to it in more detail, like JD said, but I think persecution specifically is um, being mistreated for your faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. So it has to be rooted and connected to your faith. Um, It's not just trials and hardship, but um, for people like that, I would just point them to scripture and say, Jesus said they hated me, they're going to hate you. Like, how do you take that passage other ways than what the plain meaning is? And And just say that, you know, Paul's aspect or perspective of that truth is that there's joy in what he calls participating in the suffering of Christ. To say there's actually joy. And God uses that, again, for good in our lives to prove out and refine um, God-like character in our lives. So it's actually like a a grace of God um, to us. And it actually, like in those hard times that you've experienced that, maybe in your own walk, you can also testify to like in those moments, God's grace is special and personal mm-hmm. in a way that you don't experience outside of that event. And so although there's difficulty and, and we don't, you know, wish persecution on the church um, it's not outside of God's control and what he plans mm-hmm. to do with it, and it's for our good, as Romans 8 talks about. So yeah. um, that's how I would talk to people that try to... And I think sometimes we get infected with worldly concepts, and, and that's probably one of them, I would guess, is this idea of prosperity gospel um, that's that's common in our country, of, you know, it's my best life now, I'm supposed to pursue comfort, and I'm supposed to have this, you know, easy street because I'm a Christian now. And I think that totally forsakes... Um, I don't know the exact reference. I think it's maybe Mark, Michael Dietz would know because I think it's your favorite verse, but counting the cost. um, Luke 9, 23. 23, I was totally wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, counting the cost is part of um, what it means to be saved and recognizing I'm not doing this because I want an easier life. That's not trusting in Christ. That's trusting in comfort. Um, But saying, you know what, there's a cost to following Christ And I'm willing to give up everything because I have nothing. (laughs) And if I have Christ, I have everything. It's worth it. It's worth it, yeah.
0: Yeah. Maybe time for one more question before we wrap up. Good question. So with those who are firmly convinced of, of the Arminian view, that it's man's free will that's determinative um, and, and, and everything that kind of flows out of that, how do we maintain unity? How do we engage with them? Uh, how do we avoid pride or unnecessary contention? Um, it's a very good question, probably a good practical question for us to wrap up with.
1: So, so back to what JD said, like if if I'm truly resting in these doctrines of grace, that the fruit of resting in these truths is humility. So whether it's an Arminian or a pagan, my -hmm. response ought to be the same. My response ought to be, "I, I love you enough to share these truths, but I'm not here to beat you over the head with it. Because if I really believe my position, I believe God has to illumine your eyes to see it and so it's not up to me to beat you over the head with something and you know he he mentioned 1 Corinthians earlier like i think paul is actually thinking about jeremiah when he says who are we to boast you know no this is this is god's grace in action so no man can boast and he's he's saying there that our, our job is not to boast and actually paul even addresses this idea of knowledge i think later in 1 Corinthians he says knowledge actually puffs up and i think we 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 get too much entrenched in our system like Joshua was saying earlier we like this theological thought and we like following these trails down the track and we think man we got it made we get it light bulbs are on and we kind of look down on those that disagree and belittle them but actually if we realize the comfort and the humility that comes from it we ought to compassionately reach out to these people and say "I, I understand your thinking and here's some questions that I've wrestled through and we need to recognize just because you, you taught on election a couple lessons or we've talked about it a couple times doesn't mean it's like, oh, you're just dumber than me. Um, that's not what it is. Ultimately, it's a work of God. And so if I believe that, it's, it ought to be evident in the way, even the tone in which I talk to people, even the, the questions I ask, I ought to be thinking about and considering how is this question going to come across to this person? And I ought, especially in personal conversation, it's really important to convey a, a love and compassion that says, I want you to know God as He's revealed Himself. And kind of what we talked about a little earlier, I was just thinking of Psalm 50, where, where God's rebuking a nation and His rebuke to them is, You thought that I was someone like yourself. And I think that's always a really important question in our walk, in our study of God's Word, to say, who are you, God? What, how have you revealed yourself? To make sure that we're not mixing in what we think God looks like, but to say, am I always pushing them back to the authority of Scripture. And that helps also put some distance, I think, in those conversations to not say it's my view versus your view, but say can we wrestle through the Bible together? And if there's unity on the authority of Scripture, then let's look at this together. And can you tell me how you explain this? And then they're going to ask you, can you tell me how you explain this? And what that does is it puts you shoulder to shoulder, you know, side by side, instead of in this opposition type of Debate Where you're really having to trump one another and and kind of supersede one another in debate. So I would say those are thoughts and a heart attitude when in those conversations to recognize what I believe to be true means that God has to act. And so that makes me humble, and it makes me ought to have uh, an affectionate heart of Christ for this person. And I also need to really come down to, especially if it's an Arminian, to say, hey, I, I think we have a unified view here on Scripture. Can we look at these together and come alongside and walk through these passages and see how we can reconcile these? Because we're all seeking to do that, so let's do it together and not feel like well, there's some sort of competition or
0: opposition. 2 Timothy 2, 24 says, or I'll start in 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. It's amazing that the gentleness that Paul urges Timothy to have is actually rooted in a confidence that God is sovereign. God may grant them repentance. And I think this is talking about people who are outside the faith. But if we can be patient and gentle with people who are outside the faith, trusting that perhaps God will change their heart, how much more should we be patient and gentle with those who are believers in the same Christ? Um, And so I think there's, there's a requirement. It's not just strategically effective. It's actually honoring to God and required that we be patient and gentle. Um, that doesn't mean that the doctrine of election is a foolish, ignorant controversy. I don't want to imply that. Um, I think this truth is worth discussing. The way people engage it is sometimes foolish. So we have to be be on guard against that. Um, This is something worth talking about. And at the end of the day, not everyone's going to agree with us. And not to steal Stephen's thunder from Philippians, but if Paul was able to say that there's other people who preach Christ, and he's able to rejoice in that because the name of Christ is going out, even if they're preaching from false motives to try to make his life harder. Um, I know that there are people who are preaching Christ who won't rightly explain this doctrine, but they are preaching that Jesus died for sinners and rose again. And so I can rejoice in that. I don't see them as the enemy. Um, we, we must not see them as the enemy. Um, so there's just a few thoughts there, but that's a really good question. And, I, and I'll just close with this as well. Um, we have people in our church who are members of our church who are not firmly convinced of this doctrine. So we, we would see a basis for unity in the essentials at this church. And we would not require that you um, believe in the five points of Calvinism to be a member here. That's why we put it in the secondary section. These are distinctives. This is what we're going to teach. This is going to practically affect how we do ministry. Um, but if you can live with that, We welcome you here, and we would love to have you be part of our fellowship. So, yeah, good question. Thanks, guys. We'll be back here in about 15 minutes for our morning worship service.